Welcome to the Rainbow Bull with Tim Volk from T. Volk and Company Consulting. In this podcast, Tim, a proud member of the LGBTQ community, discusses a range of topics around the five capitals of a flourishing family, human, intellectual, social, spiritual, and financial capital. Tim will use this framework as he and his guest experts delve into the secrets of the wealthy and how we might learn from them. So let's get started on this exciting adventure together. She's a journalist who works in the world of family offices and wealth management. She's the editor of Crane Currency, a publication for families managing generational wealth and legacies. She also writes about travel, food, entertainment, and finance. In fact, Tim Volk, your guest, Kristen Oliveri, has written about many different topics. Please introduce her so we can learn more. Thank you, Patrice. I am so excited, you guys, to have Kristen on the show today. You're going to love talking with her. Um, she is by far one of the most beautiful, charming people you'll ever meet. And we have so much fun together. We clown. We, uh, I don't, well, we can't talk about everything we've done, but I would say that her uh, experience and background in writing about wealth management in particular about the ultra high net worth space or the area of, of, of super wealth um, is remarkable. And her observations, I, I really am thrilled today to have her talk a little about her observations. And then we'll do another podcast about her personal passion of travel and food. So we, both of us share that. So we thought we'd kind of riff on that a little bit on another episode. So today, uh, I thought what would be great is if, and, and, and her background is remarkable, but Kristen, I'd love to welcome you to the show and thanks for being with us. No, thank you, Tim. Nothing makes me more excited to talk to you. Oh, so cool. What I, I maybe you should tell everybody how we met. This is <laughs> <I'm> almost scared. <laughs> Uh, oh my God! How many years ago? I don't know. Let's just say roughly know. a decade, maybe. Oh, um, more than maybe that more. I don't know. So picture this: Boston, the Museum of Fine Arts. We are at a benefit that I was invited to by our good industry friend Steve Prestano. Um, I was on the dance floor, I think, with my college roommate. I somehow got her roped into an invite, and I feel like the next thing I know, someone was tapping me on the shoulder, which it must have been Steve. And said, you must meet Tim Volk. You two will love each other. And then literally the rest is history. We started dancing. Didn't we just yeah, start dancing? Of course we did. <laughs> and we drank a lot that night. I'm I sure we, we did. Oh, my God. We had so much. It was a great party. It was really spectacular. I think it was the opening of that museum. It was. It was unreal. And I, I don't even remember who else was there with us. We, there was a lot of industry people that we knew. Yes. And I just remember being problem. very gussied up. And I think the invite was last minute for me. And it was just one of those kind of magical moments where you're in the right place at the right time. I think it's fun that, uh, you know, we, it was an unlikely event that we met and then we just stayed tight since. And uh, you grew up in Staten Island. So you're a New Yorker. Yeah. Um, Italian, just like my husband. And uh, I was fortunate. We were we were both fortunate enough to be invited to your wedding. And I think we've just 
really found a great way to connect and and, and I'm so glad we met that night. It was just me so too. funny. So tell me a little bit about how you tell us how you got into your career. Tell us your evolution. Tell me your story. Yeah, it's a fun one to tell, I think. Um so I studied journalism in college, also English, lit, and drama and theater, which might not shock anybody. Uh, and I wanted to go into journalism, uh, but my passion was lying within theater, travel, food, wine. And I thought I was going to go be one of these really prolific um, journalists who cover the arts, pretty much. And uh, my main focus was to get a job in food. <laughs> And when I came out of college, I was looking around and it was sort of the error of um, 2006, 2007 was the era of, of um, the food journalists. I mean, the rise of a lot of publications, a lot of social media around it. Food Network was exploding. It was actually quite hard to get a job. And I couldn't find anything where I was going to be covering food. Um, and I wound up getting an interview with an institutional investor. Uh, and they, I interviewed for a number of different publications. They were looking for, you know, entry level beat reporters covering different parts of finance. And I remember going in, telling my boyfriend at the time, who was a hedge fund manager, I said, I know nothing about finance. I've studied all these liberal arts things. Um, and he's like, well, you'll be fine. See if anything makes sense. And if you're aligned, it'll work out. Um, and I interviewed for a bunch of different publications, but the one that stuck was the wealth management publication that was called Private Asset Management. Uh, my boss, yeah. who is now a great friend of mine who also came to my wedding, um, was interviewing me and I was candid. I said, listen, I'm a really good journalist. I'm a reporter. I know how to uh, write a well-structured story. I know how to interview people. I'm good at source development, but I don't know anything about this space. And it's it's a B2B business publication. So I'd imagine <laughs> having that expertise would be important. And she said, listen, uh, I, I can teach you that. It's about a personality fit in this space. And I think you've got the personality to work with people in the wealth management space. Um, she said a lot of it is connected to sort of luxury and lifestyle and having long lunches. And I said, okay, sign me up. So there I went. And uh, <laughs> the evolution of a journalist career is kind of funny. Um, I went from writing and then sort of falling into the event space to coming back to full on editing again. But um I stayed within the wealth management family space, family office space for now 17 years. And I think at one point a while back, someone said to me that there was only 10 journalists in the US that actually focused on the family office space. I have no idea if that stat is true today, but um, there aren't many people that have spent a lot of time in the trenches in that space. And I knew that I was kind of on to something with building out my career there. But like any career, things ebb and flow. And I had been writing for a publication, then I got sold to another organization and I went there. And then I somehow found my way um, back to institutional investor for the second time in my career covering events. And I wasn't, I fell into it completely. I, oh, I didn't know that. I was brought in to launch a family office community publication slash events business that was only high touch. So it was supposed to be um, these experiences, high touch dinners, et cetera, but it was supposed to be almost like a membership group. Um, it did not last long. <laughs> However, I met my husband. So <laughs> everything in the world, you know, you're there for a reason. Uh, and then everyone looked around and said, we like you, you've worked here twice in your career. We, we want your expertise. Would you be open to running our family office conferences? 
on the editorial side, of course, you know, creating the event content, finding the right people to speak, yada, yada. And uh, I really had no interest in that. It was just, that was my option at the time. I wanted to stay within wealth management. So I thought it made sense. And in that period of my career, I really had the chance to, if we want to call it business development or investor relations, I don't know, but I traveled all over the world meeting with family offices. And that was really cool. And I talked to them and my only ask of them was, hey, can you come to a conference? So it wasn't like I was trying to necessarily sell them anything. Um, so I, in a lot of ways, I was a safe haven for, for families oh, yeah. and they felt right. very comfortable talking to me, right? They'd tell me about their structure, or what what their challenges are, or what they or where they see the markets going and over, mind you, a lot of long lunches, lots of cocktails, <laughs> great parties. And uh, I spent a great deal of time, obviously, traveling throughout the U.S., but um, in Europe. And I, as you mentioned, I'm Italian, so any chance to get back to Italy and the, the surrounding countries were great. And then I had two kids, and they're adorable oh, and wonderful. Lovely. But that became a moment in my life when things were changing, and I thought, what do I really want to do with the next 10, 15 years of my life? What do I love doing? What am I good at? And um, it always came back to wealth management and family offices because of the relationships. But the thing that when I sort of meditated on it while I was on maternity leave with my second, it was that I like telling people stories. I just, I'm, I'm fascinated by humans. I'm particularly fascinated by the people that make up the wealth management family office space. We've talked about this before, but everybody's yeah. some amazing Renaissance person that you know, sings opera on the side or something. I wanted to figure out what my impact could be in, in my profession. And I think what I came to was also, I have the ability to amplify others' voices. If that's an article, if that's a story that no one was getting you know, any attention to, if it's a connection between people that I wrote about you and I wrote about you, you two should know each other and that helps them. Um, so long-winded way of saying it came back to, it all sort of culminated in taking this job with Crane Currency, um, Crane Communications, which is a well-known family business. Everybody knows Crane's New York business, Crane's Chicago Automotive right. News. They were launching a family office pub and they were looking for an editor. Um, and then the final thing I'll say about that, the kicker for me was that um, they also wanted to cover things like art, collectibles, lifestyle, oh. luxury. And that is me in a nutshell. Um, I've freelanced in that space my entire career. So I've, I've meshed this family office space with this luxury space, if you will. You know, I had a side hustle before that was a thing. They called it freelance. <laughs> um, and this was the way to bring my two worlds together. And it just felt like the right place for me. Um, so I sort of went full circle, started as a journalist, back to being an editor, all within 17 years in the wealth management space. That's amazing. I, I think that, no, I think it's a great story. They, each of our stories are unique but to ourselves, but however, what, what I like, and I think that's interesting here and which is why we're talking about it is how much you've been able to observe families in a different role. So you're in a non-threatening role, you're objective because that's your journalism back background and you want to make an impact and difference by helping amplify those voices that you think should be heard. So I think that's one of the most powerful things you can do as a journalist. So I'm, 
curious because you and I started when we talked about the good and the bad of of what you do in the industry and what you're witnessing because I you know I've broken this into when we talk about the podcast we talk about uh, following Jay Hughes's concepts of the five capitals of the family you know the financial capital is the basis in his opinion to support the human the intellectual capital the social capital and the spiritual capital the human capital is actually the people in the family the intellectual capacity is just that the the brain power of the family members the social capital is really what what's the money for what are we supposed to do uh what do we want to do the spiritual capital is what is the value base that we have what are what is the foundation that we have as a family and as a group that we want to pass on. And and those usually extend into the family businesses if they have family businesses like my family. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, what the industry does is it focuses on the financial capital because that's how it gets paid and how we function as an industry on, on, the, on, on managing the money and making the money grow and work. But it really is the other four capitals that are really the more important part of the family that we know in order for them to flourish. And so how do we, you know, what are some of your observations as your career has evolved about working in this space? Like, what are some of the thoughts that you have? I have many. Um, A couple of things. I think I've seen this story arc play out, right, over 17 years. And and I, I started with news things, right? What were the big things that people were talking about? And and one of them, um, I think, which is a key theme was this great transfer of wealth um, going to women, right? Um, in the next couple of decades are happening now. Um, and that was a big thing I started writing about at 21, 22 years old. Um, banks were talking about it. The advisors were talking about it, The family offices were trying to ready their female next gen. Um I wish I've seen more movement <laughs> in that story arc. <laughs> really? I do. Um, and, and I I just want to see more women um, taking the lead. I, and there's, there's a lot of education that needs to be there, but there needs to be this, a lot of it goes to succession, right? Like having the buy-ins of these patriarchs, matriarchs, people that are running the family businesses, the money, really incorporating their children particularly the women in, involved in the process, knowing what the business actually does, what a family office does, basic finances, ABCs, you know, really understanding that piece to then have them when all of a sudden one day there's this liquidity event or this money is being transferred to them that they're not looking at everybody else or they don't just, you know, they've inherited some advisor that they hate, you know, that there's no real relationship with really getting them involved. Um, I think that that would be powerful wow for me to see a little bit more of, I'd also love to see more female executives within the wealth management space, multifamily offices, banks, more, 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 more. Um, And then the other piece is diversity, inclusion, representation in general. It's a traditional industry. It always has been. And I know things are changing because they are, it's 2023, things are changing. But seeing more representation, the next gen has to drive this and they have to ask for it and they have to be more vocal than everybody was before. And that is happening. And I think a piece of 
our world, technology, social media, whatever we want to call it, is driving that trend a little forward. Another thing I see, obviously, is this this concept of like the traditional white glove family office. Um, that's changing too. And people are saying, um, you know, there was a time where family offices couldn't be found. So there was no website. There's no phone number. You know, good luck in figuring out who actually runs it, who's the CIO. As a journalist, mm-hmm. those are things I would be trying to, you know, uncover and they'd probably never go on the record, but even just to know about them. Um, right. And that's changing a little bit more as the next gen, as a more diverse family office professional takes over. I think some of them see the power in sharing their stories a bit more. And I think that's where the representation piece will happen. Um, if we could push for that a bit more, or that's what I would like to see happen. But those are some of the the key things or story arcs I've been seeing play out. It's interesting because I've, you and I've talked about the fact that I wrote a chapter for Barbara Hauser's book, The Family Office Journal Productionist by Global Law, and Barbara helped to coordinate it as an editor. But the And they asked me to write a chapter on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really about inclusion. I wish, I kind of think that the I, inclusion, I wish it led with inclusion. Because I think when we say diversity right out of the gate, everybody thinks affirmative action and they get this, there's this sort of Their backs are up immediately. Right, their backs up. And And I keep saying to people, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, if you watch Crazy Rich Asians, uh, well, you look at Moonstruck, look at any ethnic movie, the, the big fat Greek wedding. You know, sure. what do you mean he's not Greek? Is a long stringy hair. Is a zeno. I don't know what I don't know. Is he a good boy? I don't know. Is he a good Greek boy? No, I don't know. And then, and then in crazy, I'll make Asians, I make laugh. You eat no meat. I I'll make laugh. I mean, it's just the ethnicity issue. The inclusion in a family has been going mm-hmm. on for millennia, for generations, mm-hmm. right? My friends that are Jewish that married non-Jewish spouse, they were like, they're not Jewish. And they're like, no, they're still doesn't, not Jewish. Just no. <laughs> <laughs> it's just nothing. It's like a blank. No. But I don't know you know, within the LGBTQ space, which is what they wanted me to write about. uh, You know, I've met lately more people that are coming out, although I just don't think there's a lot of people that are out in our space. I I mean, maybe I could think of 10 and that's sad. We just need that are actively out that I know that Mm -hmm. have involvement in in top roles. Um, But I think it's, yes, the inclusion, we should change that around. I think that's what it's about. I mean, Don't it's, you? yes. What would you, how would you rank it? Inclusion, equity, and diversity? I think so. Yeah, that's um, what I think. And it's funny because I know we're sort of talking the family, the family office side, but from a wealth management perspective, a mm-hmm. lot of these DEI, DEI programs are being slashed. Like if I hear this one more time that a, a large organization has slashed their DEI project or they've gotten rid of the person that they hired, I mean, that's just a crime to me. But I think it's about framing the conversation in a different light. And if we just, you know, I'll I'll give you an example. I went to a a conference, family office conference in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago, and there was a workshop. It was a women in wealth workshop, but talking about sort of women stepping up in the family business, but the, it was about imposter syndrome, right? And how do you deal with imposter syndrome? And they had all these exercises and we got involved in little groups and, um, 
I mean, it was actually one of those wonderful moments. A, a woman who was a matriarch who lost her husband and then her daughter's husband was ill. And these two women found themselves running a family office and family business when had had no involvement prior. Um, and she had just, she had immigrated from India. She had only been a caretaker in her home and not involved in the family office whatsoever and was so nervous to even do these little exercises in groups. Um, and by the end of that exercise, I, I told her, I said, don't worry, you're, you're getting stressed out about it. Let's just chat. She told me her story. She was incredibly powerful, moving, thoughtful. We were crying and hugging at the same time at the end. Yeah. But, but I mean, I, I expected that type of takeaway for me because I was there to, to have that sort of experience. But the bigger piece of it for me was when we were leaving, there was a couple of men in the room and one of them was running the event. And after I left, I said, so what was your takeaway? And he goes, I was blown away. He's like, I don't even, I can't wrap my head around imposter syndrome, like the concept of it. And he goes, and I have young daughters who are entering the workforce and he was there to try to do the work. And I really appreciate it. And he was very candid and open about what he was saying, but it just showed a perspective of people that don't even ever understand what it's like to no. feel the way that most people feel. Um, <laughs> and, and that was a big moment for me. So that's why inclusion is so important. Um, and sometimes people might scoff at a session like that at a conference because like, here we are again, a diversity session or a women's session, that's right. what have you. But you know, let's get some other people in the room and, and get them to see what it feels like. Um, it was really, really special moment. There's a client that I had uh, a year or so ago when I was with Axiom, wonderful clients uh, and a uh, big family. And the the family had made clear that the sons, because it was a group, large family, had run the business and, this, and the wives had not been involved. But in the estate planning, the attorneys are like, well, who do you trust? And of course, the the brothers they were all like well our wives they should be the head of the you know if something happens to me they need to be the ones to step in well trying to tell them after a lifetime of not being involved anybody anybody that we have and we had i have another set of clients where we met with the family and the uh the husbands were told not to be involved and then we had to tell them you will be the head of the of the trusts in uh, the stock in this big business, you, the husbands you will be in control of. And they're like, I've not been involved in this. I have no idea how to do this. Big it event. It defies logic. And so all of a sudden, you know, what I find odd is the, what is a bad level of communication? I think that families overlook the obvious, like they overlook the talent that's in the room. Mm -hmm. So I want to say that we don't have enough to see all voices at the table. I don't think the family's looking at everybody at the table and it's very common for them to overlook the women. That's the more common in my opinion, or the black sheep or the gay sheep, you know, the rainbow sheep, hence the rainbow bull. But I think that we're faced with a time when it's becoming more and more important as an industry uh, to not do that. Mm -hmm. And 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 this concept of this good old boy has got to stop because the demographics show by I think 2040, the white male will be the minority. Mm -hmm. And part of that is just the mixed marriages and and the and the people's ethnicity. But but if we did a 23 and me, I'm Italian, I'm not Italian, but I'm Scottish and German, I think, 
It wouldn't mm-hmm. surprise me, though, if I had Italian in me. Right. Like, you just don't know. And if you ever watch the roots, you feel Italian to me. You I know, know I'm right? also Irish and Scottish, but yes, you feel. But you know what I mean? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It's, no, of course. We're all interconnected, right? It's right. And so the thought that maybe this mm-hmm. isn't, you know, that there's some pure thing to this, I, I just don't think it's. And furthermore, the burden of the wealth, the burden that nobody's ever going to feel sorry for a wealthy family. They're just not. But the challenge that this creates is huge. And for a lot of the people that have to manage it or I would call have leadership roles, they didn't choose it. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a child or the next gen, you inherited it. You didn't choose this. Hey, hey, sorry for the interruption. Look, I know you're listening to the Rainbow Bowl podcast, and I'm really happy you're here. But if you have any questions or issues you'd like to have us discuss with the experts, please email them to us at tim.volk at tvolkco.com. We would love to hear from you. The psychology of wealth is fascinating to me, and there is, I've, I've written a lot about it, I've interviewed folks, and there's a big big dynamic between either inherited wealth or wealth creation, right? It's just a Mm -hmm. completely different mindset. And there's a lot of guilt around inherited wealth that, you know, money doesn't make anybody happy as we all know. So there's a lot of stuff that comes, but with great money, you have great influence and you have the power and the ability to do good. So that's the plus side. But you know, it doesn't mean anybody's asking for it or wants it um, and they don't know what to do with it. And then and to your, all the things you were just saying, people aren't prepared for it, right? They're like, we'll leave it to you one day. But like for the next 25 years, we're not going to tell you anything about it. So you're completely at a loss when it gets dropped in your lap. That's nuts. That defies logic to me. And I'm a very logical, you and I are both Libras, but very logical people. That's it right. just doesn't make sense. If you're going to give it to somebody someday, you need to be prepping them all the way through, or at least just giving them like, hey, just be the fly on the wall. Be that reporter in the corner. Just learn, observe, ask right. questions. Give the opportunity then, to learn. That's it. Uh, even pseudo control. What would yeah. you do if you were in control? Right. I, I don't think we think about the ability for families to actually push the decision making down, not necessarily formally, if they don't feel comfortable yet, but informally it could be done what do you think so like like, uh, okay let's go through the good and bad because you and i had a good and bad list we started Mm -hmm. when we prepped so the good things you said the amazing impact families can have comments yeah i mean i mean america was built on family businesses that literally have changed our world i think there's this nice intersection or what i've seen anyway is this intersection between philanthropy and investing where people are putting their money into actual investments that will change the world, mental health. um, I mean, cancer research, autism. I mean, some of the stuff I've written about families I've talked to are unreal. um, How that private capital can really move the needle, right? You're looking in, you know, we don't have to wait for a million clinical trials to get something done. Like private capital can help it move it forward. Um, So to me, that's where the real power lies. Like find out what the, what the mission, the ethos is of the family. And then not just throughout your philanthropic efforts, but 
how can you actually make real change there? Um, is it impact investing? Is it direct investing? I, you know, depending on how we want to frame it, but it doesn't really matter. I think that's the real good that some of these families right. are at the forefront of change. That that's a big takeaway for me. So the, so the philanthropy piece that means you and I have talked about the impact of philanthropy, and over time, I, I think a lot of the families don't get the credit. Mm-hmm. for what they've done. I think right now there's this love-hate relationship with wealthy families. Mm-hmm. And there are and, and for some families I think it's totally justified because they're not nice or they're not I don't think they see a responsibility of their wealth. Like I don't believe that when you see the, the housewives of Beverly Hills or not that I'm going to berate the show, but I just don't know that that's really truly representative of what the families want or what they want to be sure. perceived as. I think most families of enormous wealth want to make a difference, want to make good in the world. Mm -hmm. The universities, education, the art, culture, music, symphony, opera, all the things that we have in this country are really driven by visionary people, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. are there any surprises about this that you can think of in philanthropy that sort of took you back a little or like in a, either in a good way or in a bad way? Oh, and philanthropy particularly. Um, you or know, private capital, like you said, that they're trying yeah, to do I mean, something. I think I've written a lot about this intersection between philanthropy and impact investing, and and some people have so many different definitions about impact. Um, I I see just so many common. I think they're they're woven together, right? There there's mm-hmm. pieces of it that can all all be taken into account. I think there's some families that I've talked to that are like, we're just an impact family or like we've aligned our portfolio completely to be impactful, which is really admirable. Um, And then there are families that are like, you know, we don't get into that. We don't think impact investing has any street cred. So we just do our very basic check writing or what have you. But it's, it's like, let's broaden our thinking a little bit with, with the whole space, you know, what can be done. There's so many different avenues of change that people can make. Um, and that's a really good way. I think the thing I have seen, which is a good trend and has always been involved in some of the family dynamics is they get the children, the next gen involved in philanthropic efforts. It's, sometimes mm-hmm. it's the way of dipping the toe in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that could be powerful, but um, and just really having the children, the next gen sort of look through what what's important to them. It might not be what their parents were supporting for years, or they might think about doing it in a more impact investing way, or, or maybe just something else completely. But, um, you know, philanthropy is very much embedded into the core of family offices. And I think there's a lot of good that could be done there, but. Well, I think you're right. I, um, I, I, I said to one of the families, impact investing, I said, so if you invest in food bank and they food feed people, isn't that having an impact that they actually have a meal or food? Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, yes. I said, so, but it's really a, don't, I mean, you're impacting. Yeah. So, I mean, we have several friends that you and I both know that are focused in philanthropy. And I think one of the challenges they feel is that one, the urgency of the need is always there. Mm-hmm that the not-for-profit side of this doesn't get the top talent because it can't afford the top people who go to for-profit side. And then um, I think it helps to have the family find a shared passion that maybe it can help the family bind together more as a family if they can share that 
the vision of their philanthropy together. Because I think there's a warmth in it. There's an amazing sense of accomplishment. It can be the connective tissue of the family, right? Everybody wants, they, you know, another piece of this conversation is the legacy, which we haven't even touched upon yet. Yeah. But philanthropy and, and just trying to figure out how to do good within the family, but also bonding over what's important to you is is the real glue. So I think, I mean, that's okay. the heart of it. It's the heart of the family. Which which leads us to legacy, which one of the bad things you and I had on our list was poor mentorship, development, training, you know, getting the next gen in. And and for example, women in what we've already talked about, the diversity or the inclusiveness of women and and the maybe the LGBTQ members of the family. So how do we do that? How do we help them think about legacy? Like if you were going to say something about it that maybe you weren't able to say it in the in your the way you write about it what would you say to people like how um well if i was a next gen and i'm giving them advice find a mentor seek one out i even in my career i i -hmm. wish mentors were more readily available i don't know if that's happening anymore particularly now obviously covid's kind of screwed all of that up for things that are in person out of person you know not in, in person but um the role of mentorship is so important to everyone's personal oh development, career development, yeah. finding out what matters to them, having a sounding board. You know, I think the big thing between women and the LGBTQ community is advocates, right? But a mentor could be your advocate. So I see all of those pieces being really important. You know, we talked about it before, not readying people to take over the reins, but like maybe a mentor could help. And maybe that's not your parents or your per, your colleague or whatever. It could be a mentor outside of an industry. Um, I've had several mentors in my career that were sources of mine originally, right? People that I used to talk to in the space and they taught me what wealth management was when I knew nothing about finance and people that took me under their wing, invested in me as a person, got to know me personally, and they cared about what happened to me. Um, and I'm still seeking mentors. I, I One that I consider a mentor now, a woman who's a partner at a MFO in Dallas, um, who I just adore. It, we had a meeting once and she gave me a book on her bookshelf and I just, it blew my mind. And we talked about leadership and um, sort of owning your own leadership and taking that next step in your career. And, you know, I was in my early thirties when I met her. So it, you should always be seeking mentors. We could all continue. And also, the oh, now I really could go on. Um, what about the reverse mentor, right? For these patriarchs, matriarchs, maybe it's really just the patriarchs that kind of don't get where the next gen is coming from, right? Maybe you partner with them. Maybe you learn a little bit about what's going on in marketing or social media or technology, something that's not necessarily your forte. And even if it's never for a goal for you to eventually do that thing, but understanding where their heads at, where the where businesses today, what they can teach us that we, you know, that vice versa. You know, it's just the reverse mentorship thing, I think, is love also really that. powerful. I love that. Do we know is, have you ever have you seen people doing this? Not in an example in wealth management that I've seen a reverse mentor. It's pretty much from I ripped it right out of the movie The Intern with Robert De Niro and Yeah, uh, I love that. I actually but but that movie was very, very poignant about that because right. he became the reverse mentor for her. Right. And they just they just helped each other, right? Uh, I just uh, it's powerful, I think. Oh my gosh. I think this is something we should really 
write more about because I also think that as you get older, you feel disconnected mm-hmm. because in this country, not so much in other countries, but in the U.S., I think we also feel like we've left our elder behind. You know, you feel like you're not relevant. And the people that I know that have stayed in business that continue to work and are are much more hip than those that don't. But they're still missing, I think, sometimes the younger energy that can come forth and say, hey, why don't you look at doing this? Why don't we look at doing that? And so there's a mutuality in that mentorship. I've actually, as you say that, Kristen, I've actually had the reverse mentoring going on at different times in my life. I never thought about it. I think we should always constantly be learning, right? If we if we're not, then what's the point of even working anymore, right? We should be learning new things. And how do you do that? You expand. It's like having friends, right? You have to have friends yep. for different reasons from different parts of your life. Same thing goes on in mentoring. Um, and I think there is like technology from when I started, even me now, like I, people are always like, well, you're under 40, you know, this thing I was like, don't at all. Let's ask the person out of school, right? Technology is, has, has blown past me too. Like I, I'm not immune to that. Um, but I also know what I don't know. And I'm going to raise my hand and ask for help and going to the younger generation and saying, Hey, can you explain these things to me? Cause I really like to know. I care about it, even if it's not some task I'm executing on directly myself. Um, And then I can understand a little bit more about where they're coming from. They can understand where I'm coming from. And I mean, and then if you put that sort of concept into wealth management or a family office or a family business, like super powerful. And it doesn't have to be this overly thought out thing. It's just spending time with people and sharing with them what you're working on. So I think what you're saying is we want this younger generation to actually seek out and say, let's partner with each other. You teach me, I teach you. That would be my advice. Yeah. So let's also, I want to hear your also thoughts on source. You know, real journalism versus social media. And I I can't even remember who I had a conversation with somebody the other day, one of the younger guys that I've been mentoring. And they were telling me how they get their news. And they only listen to TikTok or some strange news source that I've never heard of. And I'm like, do you understand how that's shaping your mind? Um, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know how to, I really want to hear your thoughts on this. I have so many. Um, I believe in facts. I believe in thinking through a concept or a story angle and talking to multiple sources. That's the whole point, right? I think what's happened with social media, TikTok, what you know, whatever we want to talk about, whatever social media avenue it's it's being produced on. People, there's a lot of opinions. And and listen, in journalism, that's called an editorial op-ed. There's a place for that. There's a place for someone to give their opinion, kind of like what we're doing now, right? Everything I'm saying is not fact, it's my opinion. Um but that doesn't float its way into a news story or a profile. And then there's things called checking facts. <laughs> you talk to somebody and you know, you're know you asking them three questions and then you might say, hmm, did I get that right? I wrote it down or he, you know, we videotaped it, but maybe I didn't really fully understand that concept. Mm-hmm. Let me go back and discuss it a little bit further so I could really wrap my head around it. Um, uh, there's a couple of things in journalism school that I learned that I don't know if it even exists today, but... I'm not supposed to be the expert. I mean, I've now developed an expertise because I've covered an industry for so long, but 
my goal was to find the experts. I don't have to be the expert, which I think is a problem with a lot of news these days. Everybody wants that the journalists want to be the talking heads, not, you know, it's kind of the other way around. You're supposed to be finding the talking heads. And I mm-hmm. think we need to figure out what like differentiate fact from opinion. I mean, that's kind of basic, but that's a big issue of what's going on today. Um, do fact people from get, opinion. yeah, I mean, differentiating, and if it's an, I agree. And if it's an opinion, let's label it. This is an opinion. And I think this is one of the challenges the families are facing. uh, And it's sort of an unseen part of the challenge right now is image, how they're being perceived. And I think some of the younger generation in the families may perceive it a little different than the senior members of the family. Uh, And it may be good or maybe bad, but some of it is, again, part of the social media trap. Which is not necessarily fact, right? I mean, I've always said, and I, I think, I know, maybe I'm sure people disagree with me. Social media is marketing, right? You and I both use it. Yep. I use it every time I post an article. If I'm, you know, but I'm not taking pictures of myself at my worst day because I'm not. That's for me and my family, and that's private. But the things that I put on social media is a reflection of what I'm trying to put out in the world for my image, for my career. Like that's that's my goal. If I repost a news story or if I'm, I'm publishing something about a, a restaurant I ate at, et cetera, like there's a yep. thought process behind it and it really has a marketing lens, right? That That's just, that's it that's for me. It is. Right. And I think some people really don't get that. I've had conversations with people, family members, things like that. And they're like, oh, but such and such posted this, so it has to be real. I'm sure there's a story behind it, right? There's a reason why people post things and it's not always obvious to you. And that's that's how you have to take it. And I think- the dangers of social media versus journalism or journalism, things are rooted. In fact, we're talking to humans and telling their stories. Um, you can't do that with a word limit on TikTok or Instagram. The other day I was trying to post about my birthday reflections and there was a word count on Instagram. I was like, well, I had a little bit more to say <laughs> <laughs> about my reflections on my birthday. Um, but the point is like, it stops me because then it became less relevant. Cause who's going to read that? Um, that's and right. I and I will say, even in however long I've been working, unfortunately, there's a lot more of a focus on shorter news stories, briefs, catchy headlines. I mean, we've gone that way. The SEO takes over our world, right? Like what's the headline that's gonna make somebody click versus what's the headline that's that speaks that rings the the truest to the actual story. We're not doing right. that anymore. And, and to a degree, I have to do it too. I have to write catchy headlines. I get it. It's part of my job. But the thing that I do have control over is making sure I quote people correctly. I'm telling a story. I'm getting three or more people's views on a topic. So it doesn't come across one-sided. I'm not creating a ending before a beginning, you know? Yeah, that's right. So I do think people are doing that out there. I think journalism is it's at an inflection point because of social media and technology. But I don't think we're ever going to stop needing truth and people to tell the truth and people to like, you know, think through content and present it to a wider audience. That'll that'll still always be needed. Um, a free press is what our country was built on. Well, we and need I think that that's part function. of that's part of what you do. I think that's one of the balance. And I cranes is pretty much a more fact-based publication group anyway. Yeah, very much so. So what, what's the final question? Like if I, I know we've 
we could talk for a long time, which we'll talk some more on our next podcast. What's game changing next for you? Oh, what's game changing? And I wake up every morning able to do my job and have two kids seems pretty game changing. <laughs> <laughs> I might be in the stage of my life where um, I'm trying to hang on. I am trying to do the thing that I love, which is meeting people, talking to interesting people like you because our space is filled with people like you. And that's the coolest part about it. Um, And then, you know, balance a family around that. That's been, it's definitely harder than I ever would have imagined. Um, I thought I prepared myself for it, but I hadn't uh, because I'm in it. So um, for me, hanging on for the next couple of years, getting up and being able to put makeup on and doing my job is, is top priority. Um, (laughs) What's next for me in terms of the future I want to find new people to spotlight. I mean, it kind of goes back to our conversation of inclusion, like whose stories have I not heard? Because it is a small industry. And I think you kind of come around, oh, I know that person. I know that person. Or, okay, that firm's doing this thing. And like, same old, same old. But what's new? You know, what are people doing that's interesting that I haven't come across? And how can I bring those stories to light? So hopefully that answers your question. Oh, my gosh. I think it's so cool to see you where you are today and to think it wasn't that long ago that that uh, you and I were having a cocktail and you invited Phil over to meet me and I and I met him and I looked at you and I looked at him and I said, oh, no, this is it. I, I knew it was just so. <laughs> so, um, my dear friend, thank you. Patrice, did we cover? What do you have any other thoughts that we should cover or? I think you've had some fantastic thoughts in there. I love the thing about uh, the family bonding through philanthropy. Never thought of it that way, but that could be something that heals many rifts, I suppose. And I think anybody can do it. I mean, anybody can do it. Definitely. Definitely. Even for the holidays, taking your kids down to the the food bank or the Oh, yeah. Volunteer. 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 You don't have to have a lot of money to give. It can be your time. It's true. Time is more valuable than money. And I think... Kristen is there's so much to talk about. There's going to be more we do talk about, and maybe our listeners will ask questions and reach out and ask more things for us to talk about. But it brings up if, the next question How can people reach you? Oh, uh, on Instagram at Chris Oliveri, uh, and then on LinkedIn at Kristen Oliveri and Third Crane Currency. So we have a LinkedIn page that's pretty popular and um, we're trying to grow that so that's also a place people can reach me tim and of course you can call me or email me at tim.volk at tvolko.com or uh make sure you follow us on our instagram with the rainbow bull uh and i look forward to hearing people share their thoughts and also if you have questions or want us to cover a topic please let me know we really appreciate you listening and if i'm here for you All right, everybody, you heard him. Follow the podcast. Don't miss any episodes. Be sure to share with friends and colleagues as well. And as Tim said, thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to the Rainbow Bull Podcast. Visit our website at www.tvolco.com or give us a call at 312-636-5855. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of T. Volk and Company Consulting. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. 
The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.